You can look up at that image. You may believe that it's cheesy, but it's good, isn't it? What's bugging you? (laughs) Exodus chapter 8. This is a short text, and uh, it's filled with a lot of incredible stuff. So let's let's take a look at the text together. We're going to read it, and then we'll come back and break it down. Exodus chapter 8. We begin at verse 16. Then the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your staff, Exodus 8, 16, and strike the dust of the earth that it may become gnats throughout all the land of Egypt. And they did so, and Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff and struck the dust of the earth. And there were gnats on man and beast. All the dust of the earth became gnats throughout all the land of Egypt. And the magicians tried with their secret arts to bring forth gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. Then the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he did not listen to them as the Lord had said. Father, as we open your word, your word is holy. You are holy. And we thank you for this little section on the third plague because it has a lot to say to us. And at first it may even be a bit confusing why plagues, why these specific things, but you have a purpose behind everything you do. And this one is custom designed to bring a message, a message about the things that bug us in life, a message about how the ultimate things can only be answered, the questions of sin and death which truly bug us the most by the person of Jesus Christ. The only way they can be answered is by the finger or the power of God. Lord, we are here to hear from you. So thank you for all that's happened so far. And I pray that we'd have ears to hear what your spirit says to your people at this hour. Because this is a unique hour. A time when the church must stand and rise, and we cannot do it by might, nor by our own power, but by your spirit, says the Lord. And I think that's what the finger of God ultimately points to, the power of the Holy Spirit, the power of God. And Lord, I pray that that power would move mightily in our hearts, in our lives, for your glory. In Jesus' name, if you agree, would you say, amen. Amen. Charles Schultz, the... uh, cartoonist famous for creating the Peanuts comic strip, before he was famous for doing the Peanuts comic strip, wrote a book. And the book was called, What's Bugging Old Pharaoh? And it was a humorous look at this particular plague of the gnats. And if you have a King James Version, it says a plague of lice. Some of you may be asking questions about why plagues to begin with. And what about this question of judgment? Last night I got an email from a young man that I had a chance to do ministry with and he's since moved away. But he, he brought up Isaiah, uh, I think it's 45, seven. And it says that God causes well-being and also causes calamity. And the King James says causes evil. And he said, I'm having, Pastor Michael, I'm having a tough time explaining this concept of how is it that God could cause evil? And my response was, well, the word is better rendered calamity, and the context of those verses has to do with Israel. 
And here's what happened in the case of Israel. God sent his prophets to the nation. And they warned and warned and warned some more. And they were warned not to embrace the ways of the nations around them. Not to embrace their false gods and goddesses. Not to learn to practice their abominable practices like divination and child sacrifice. But unfortunately, Israel got enamored with the nations around them. They wanted to be like them. Not all of them, but the bulk of the nation often was swept away into idolatry. And God sent the prophets. And when you read your Old Testament, you need to know that when you see a prophet come to Israel, oftentimes it's warning in advance. It's saying, this is what's gonna happen if you don't turn. And Israel often did not turn. And so God used Assyria and Babylon to judge his people. But he also used Cyrus, the king of Persia, to free his people. And my explanation to this young man was simply this. God causes well-being, but his calamity that he brings is divine judgment at times. It comes with warning and with a purpose. In the case of Israel, it was divine justice or discipline to bring them back to God. Now, was it ugly and brutal? If you came under the, uh, you know, the power of King Nebuchadnezzar, who was ruthless, would there be a lot of death and destruction? Yes. But here's the key. But it was just. God is just. So when God causes calamity, it is just. So as we go through these plagues, and we've been able to laugh together a little bit about the plague of frogs and all of that and the rivet and all of that, we still need to know the bigger picture is that God has been warning Egypt. And Egypt has been abusing his people for a long period of time, trying to kill the Hebrew uh, male babies and throw them into the river and so forth, stuff that we've been through already. So you may struggle a little bit with this idea of judgment, but God is a just judge. And he is judging, in this case, the gods of Egypt. It says, then the Lord said to Moses, then is a transitional word in verse 16, and it makes us think about that plague of frogs. But notice that the then word then leads into a uh, judgment without warning. The first two came with warning. This one comes with no warning. So some people might say, well, why didn't God give Pharaoh warning with this one? Well, he had already warned him, and Pharaoh already had hardened his heart. He wasn't listening. So sometimes things will happen in your life with warning, you may hear a message, you may uh, be reading your Bible and something jumps off the page and it's as if God was saying to you, I want you to turn around, I want you to turn from this stuff. But if you don't listen, some things can come without warning. And Pharaoh is a good example of how there will be no warning and that is going to really bug Pharaoh. The true God was inconvenient for Pharaoh, just as he is for many today. Pharaoh was willing to call upon the Lord when he was in trouble. He even asked for prayer. Just go back for a second and look at uh, verse 13. The Lord, Exodus 8, 13, did according to the word of Moses. Pharaoh had asked for prayer and the frogs died out of the houses, the courts, and the fields. So they piled them in heaps and the land became foul. But when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, literally, if you're with us last week, he had a little breathing room or a space what did he do? He hardened his heart 
And this always goes with a hard heart. And he did not listen to them as the Lord had said. So the moment that he got a little relief, he was willing to ask for prayer. Hey, Moses and Aaron, can you talk to the big guy upstairs for me? I'm in some trouble. We've all probably experienced this. You're known as the Christian at the office, at the school, in your family. And an emergency comes and they ask you to come and pray. They're very open in times of emergency. Have you noticed? And so you come and pray. But oftentimes what happens is if a little space is given, let's say that the Lord does work because he is gracious and he gives them a little breathing room, a little space. A lot of people are like Pharaoh. And once they get a little breathing room, they say, well, I'm good now. And the frogs were piled up and the stench remained and that's what happens with sin. But we can find a way to use that, that spray, that aerosol stuff, you know, the, with the orange blossoms in it. Spray enough of that and maybe you could forget about the piles of frogs and what just happened and move on and brush it away. And that's what Pharaoh was pretty good at. Uh, I had mentioned last week that the God that's being dealt with is Haket in the frog plague. And uh, she, that, this goddess, was supposed to control the frog population. Uh, I think Haket was humiliated last week, wasn't she? She didn't do a very good job. And what you need to see is that the gods of Egypt are being exposed for what they actually are. They are powerless and they are simply inventions of man trying to deal with what man fears or appease these so-called gods and goddesses. And so Pharaoh hardened his heart. Oftentimes you see God hardens his heart and then Pharaoh hardens his own heart. I want you to take your Bible and turn all the way, holding your place in Exodus 8 to Revelation chapter 16. This is the plague of the bowls. And this is in the day of the Lord judgment. I want you to see a connection to the frogs before we move on. We're focusing on a little bit of uh, the word then and the plague of frogs. Notice it says, and I saw, this is Revelation 16, 13, coming out of the mouth of the dragon, that's Satan, and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet, Revelation 16, 13, three unclean spirits, what's your Bible say? Like frogs. For they are spirits of demons performing signs, Revelation 16, 14, which go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them together for the war of the great day of God, the Almighty. Behold, here is a parenthetical statement to encourage believers. Behold, I'm coming like a thief for all those who would read this. Blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his garments lest he walk about naked and men see his shame. And they gather them together to the place which is, in Hebrew, is called Har-Mageddon, or it means the mountain of Megiddo. Here's the thing. The future, for all of us who see this as a future bold judgment, has some connection to this plague of frogs. And here, these frogs, or spirits that are like frogs, is a simile, go out croaking a message and you know what their message is to the world leaders? It's time to fight the Christian God. It's time once and for all to get rid of him and his ways and all that goes with him. 
And what you're going to notice, we're going to do this several times in the book of Exodus, is that the judgments that are in the book of Exodus are mirrored in large part in the book of Revelation. And so there is a coming second Passover, if you will. God is going to pass over Egypt again. Stay with me and think about these concepts. Egypt is a type, a picture of the world. The world is trying to kick God out, to imbibe other gods and goddesses, to live the way that they want to live. God, the God of the Bible, is largely inconvenient for them. But a day of judgment is coming. Egypt in quotes, is going to be judged in the future once again. That's what our Bible teaches. And the same kinds of things that happen in ancient Egypt are happening, sadly, today. Go back to the book of Exodus. Uh, one thing I wanted to mention to you is some of you know the Polish pastor in, I think it's Calgary. Uh, the police have shown up twice at his church while they're trying to gather for worship. And uh, he both times yelled them out of the building. And he didn't do it lightly. Get out! <laughs> Get out of here! Get out! He called them Gestapo. He called them Nazis. Uh, Get out! He basically screamed them out of, the, out of the building. And he did it. They came back and he did it again. But now there's a, uh, what I heard is like a, a bench order from a judge to use any means necessary to deal with this man. His name is Arthur, I think it's Pulowski, Polish name. This is what's happening now just up to the north of us, you guys, in Canada. This is some unique stuff happening in the Western world. And we need to pray. We need to pray for our country. I think the only thing that's really gonna solve this is a revival, amen? We need a spiritual great awakening in America and we need it to move really to the north of us and everywhere. And so the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, back in Exodus 8, 16, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth that it may become gnats, New King James, lice through all the land of Egypt, Exodus 8, 16. There's a little debate about what this bug is, but I guess a gnat is a kind of a broad category for any a two-winged flying insect that might land on you or bite you. And the Hebrew root word here is to fasten. So for me, often this happens when I'm mowing the lawn. Can I get a witness? Uh, I'm out there, I'm mowing the lawn, and I sometimes have a bandana of gnats around my head. And they love to fly into your ear canal. Can I get a witness? <laughs> And just one of them can make your afternoon miserable. But oftentimes, you know, they find a victim. It's kind of interesting. And they all flock to that one victim. And as long as it's not you, it's fine. If they're, you know, if they're buzzing around your friend's head or whatever, hey, uh, look at that. That's kind of funny. But when they're buzzing around your head, it's no fun. And there are some scholars that believe that these are mosquitoes. Uh, that would be something that would kind of attached to you or affixed to you and bite you and even try to suck blood out of you. Just recently and not so long ago, we had something called the West Nile virus. Do you guys remember that? Yeah. And the West Nile virus was mosquitoes that were um, 
drawn to water that had been sitting too long. And if they bit you, uh, it ended up killing people. And it, and it could be very deadly. And it isn't, isn't it interesting? It was called the West what? Nile virus. Things can just happen, right? And we've, we're coming off a year of something that was really unthinkable for us, right? We, we've had this coronavirus pandemic and it has shifted and changed everything. You can't go anywhere without trying to deal with this ongoing issue. And this is, I think these are some things that the Lord has allowed to try to get our attention. How are we doing? I ask you. We can brush it off just like the old Pharaoh did. We get a little space, we get a little breathing room, and we're really good at going back to our old ways, whatever they may be. And we kind of just forget about it until the next emergency. But God is getting Pharaoh's attention. And the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your staff. That staff is always the, the symbolic tool of the power of God. And strike the dust of the earth, that it may become gnats. You have the New King James lice throughout all the land of Egypt. Let me just share a little bit from a commentary. It says, popular parlance tends to speak of gnats as mainly annoying, tiny, biting insects, including some types of flies and mosquitoes. As the far more commonly encountered blood-sucking, disease-spreading insect almost universally dis distributed and loathed. It could be that more than one type of insect was involved here. So maybe it was something like lice, something like gnats and mosquitoes. It could have been a combination. But whatever it was, it rose up from the earth and it says, touch the dust and that all the dust may become gnats in all the land of Egypt. And some of us are hoping that that's hyperbole. Y'all know what hyperbole is? That's an extreme statement. Does all mean all? Did all the dust of the earth actually become gnats? And if it did, oh my goodness. You wanna talk about some dark clouds of swarming bugs everywhere? There's no way to ignore this one, right? And even if it is hyperbole, it still was a whole lot of bugs and a whole lot of bugged people, frustrated people. And they were swarming and they were everywhere and they were on man and beast. And the frog population had largely died out because Froggy would be very helpful with the flying insects because he could just throw his tongue out and nab the, those little insects, those little bugs. And people might have had regrets that the frogs were in piles now. Froggy, Froggy, come back. Froggy, where are you? Come, we need your help. I told you last week, you're the only one who really understands me. Some of you remember that. Never mind. Psalm 105, 29 through 31, commenting on the plague says, God turned their waters into blood and caused their fish to die. Their land swarmed with frogs, even in the chambers of their kings. God spoke and there came a swarm of flies and gnats in all their territory. Psalm 105, 29 through 31. And the land of Egypt was covered with gnats. And they did so, 17, Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff, struck the dust of the earth, and there were gnats 
notice in your Bible, on or upon man and beast, all the dust of the earth became gnats throughout or through all the land of Egypt. And they weren't just flying by. They were landing on people and on animals. And there were so many of them. You know, there's some parts of the world that people are so used to flies that little kids can be doing something and have multiple flies on their face and they don't even try to brush the fly away. They're so used to it. Now, in our family, if there is one fly in the house, everything stops. This comes from my mother and it is Mother's Day, so she will be honored with this. There's a fly in the house. Oh, no. Come on, get the fly water. And everybody's on patrol to try to kill this one demonic fly. Any of you like that? Life cannot go on if there's one fly in the house. Now, could you imagine if you were living in Egypt at this time? You're making your spaghetti sauce on the stove. There's no getting around it. They're everywhere. We, in our Italian family, would be majorly bugged. Another word would be annoyed. It's a biblical word. Never mind. Anyway. They're on animals. They're on people. Some have pointed out that in the staff touching the river, you have water. In it touching the ground, you have earth. God is sovereign over water and earth, land and sea, if you will. Speaks of God's sovereignty. And he touched the dust of the earth. Is it hyperbole or did all the dust of the earth? I hope it's hyperbole, but either way, it's a lot of them. In Genesis 13, 16, God said that Abraham's descendants would be like the dust of the earth. Now, or like the sand of the seashore. What does that mean? It means too many to count. So here's what you can know about this plague. There were too many of them to count. It was an overwhelming, incredibly annoying plague of insects. And just like the plague of frogs, probably not deadly, but extremely annoying. And I would just say to you, what's bugging you? You know, for some of you, it's, it's little things in life. For some of you, it's the big sweeping problems of our world. We're supposed to be anxious for Nothing, but let's face it, we worry about a lot of different things. There's so many things that bug us. We have a hard time laying things at God's feet. And here, Egypt, a type of the world, is being overrun. New Living Translation says, So Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord commanded, verse 17. When Aaron uh, raised his hand and struck the ground with his staff, gnats infested the entire land, covering the Egyptians and their animals. All the dust in the land of Egypt, New King, or I'm sorry, New Living, turned into gnats. The word kenem in Hebrew could also mean lice. How many of you mom have, moms have had to deal with lice? See, I say moms because dads are like, what? I don't even know what to do. Is there a YouTube video? Now, when, <laughs> when lice gets in the hair of like a child or an adult, what do you have to do? You pretty much have to shave the head, right? They kind of infest everything. Huh? That's how a dad would do it. 
We're shaving you, kid. We don't even have to have lice to give you that summer haircut. Anyway. You can have, yeah, there's, there's a shampoo for it. And so, <laughs> but why do that when you could just shave the head? Anyway, and by the way, that's what the Egyptians did anyway, so. So one man tells, says J. Vernon McGee, about his experience with lice in Egypt. He says, I noticed that the sand appeared to be in motion. Close inspection revealed that the surface of the ground was a moving mass of minute ticks, thousands of which were crawling up my legs. I beat a hasty retreat, pondering the words of Scripture. The dust of the land became lice throughout all the land of Egypt. And so the people were plagued, they were bugged, and this was a supernatural move of God. And the dust of the earth is interesting, isn't it? Because God made man out of what? The dust of the earth. And he breathed into man the breath of life. And there are so many things that we take for granted in our world. Just think about the design of your body. Think about your eye. Think about your ability to smell and taste. Your circulatory system, your pumping heart right now that is pumping blood throughout all your veins. There's so many things. The ability just to think about what I just said is an amazing creation. It cries out for, for God. And yet, we do a pretty good job of kind of oftentimes suppressing that and not thinking about the implications of what God has done and the privilege even to be human. And so he struck the dust of the ground and it reminds me of Bible verses that say something like this, from the dust we came and from the dust or to the dust we will what? We will return. And I'll tell you that there is a scholar uh, I was reading this week who says that in watching the way the plagues unfold, God is doing something he calls decreating Egypt. See, if ultimately you won't give God the glory as your creator, if you continue to quarrel with your maker and deny his design or fingerprints, which are everywhere, he can decreate things in your life that you take for granted. Amen? He's the creator, but he can also decreate. You don't want to give him glory? Then he'll say, okay, then let those other gods and goddesses save you when you're in trouble next time. That's what he said to his people. Now, what was the god being attacked in Egypt? Well, the god Geb, capital G-E-B, was the earth god. Geb was closely associated with the earth in all of its states. God, says one writer, was claiming authority over the very soil of Egypt. Geb was the one who made his report to Osiris on the state of the harvest, or the state of the earth. How would Geb explain this one to Osiris? Now, this is the Egyptian pantheon of gods and goddesses. The god Geb, the earth god, the god of the dust, gave his report to Osiris. How are we doing? How's the earth? How's the dust? Well, it's been a bad week because things are flying around and things are chaotic. And things are out of order. And that is just the point. Please hear what I'm about to say. God is allowing Egypt to experience chaos. See, God is a God of order. But if you don't want him in your life, then things can quickly become what? Chaotic. 
And here's another interesting thing to think about. In Egypt, the Pharaoh was seen as a god. And he was responsible for controlling something called ma'at, M-A, a little apostrophe, A-T. Ma'at was considered in Egypt equilibrium or balance. The Pharaoh was supposed to bring equilibrium or balance to Egypt. So the people back in Egypt looked to the earth and to their world leader for their balance. Sound familiar? Because today, and we are stewards of this planet, so we're to take good care of the planet, don't get me wrong, but we have Earth Day, and we put a big emphasis on political elections, and they are important, and we should be involved. But there are some voices in our culture right now, and you can take this for what it's worth, that are saying that God allowed Trump to lose Because evangelicals have become too dependent on him being in office. I don't know. I throw it out just as a consideration. Because we can make a lot of things into idols. And this is not an either or proposition. Don't get me wrong. We need to be politically involved. And we need to vote for the people that best represent our values. But in the end, if we rely on the wrong things, brethren, we're in trouble. Amen? And so how was Pharaoh measuring up to the Egyptians' understanding of the world? What could he do about the plagues? He had just asked for prayer from Moses, a shepherd who had basically left Egypt, and Aaron. He was crying out for help. He was helpless. Things were chaotic. And I think that there are times in our lives when God does this If you want to use the words of John Currid, he decreates. He allows a little chaos. See, God brought order when he made the world and the things therein, but now it's chaotic. And now Pharaoh and Egypt gets to decide what they believe and in whom they are going to trust. And so do I. Every day I wake up, I get to decide, am I going to trust the Lord? Am I going to trust his word and his ways? And the magicians tried, 18, with their secret arts to bring forth gnats. And all God's people said, why? Weren't there enough of them to begin with? We can do it too. Now, there are some people that believe that so far, the magicians are simply doing sleight of hand and maybe they you know, acted like they turned the water into blood somehow with coloring and maybe the frogs, they, they could control a certain amount of that and make it come out of a hat or whatever. But I don't know of a magician that has trained mosquitoes. Do you guys? So that would have been a hard one. But whatever the case, whether it was demonic power or sleight of hand or a combination of both, They could not do it. They tried with their secret arts, and there are many who believe that they were able to do some satanic miracles to bring forth gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. Now, if we take the previous plague, I told you that each of the plagues could have lasted a week. As programmatic, that is, they each lasted about a week. We don't know for sure, but let's just say it did. Could you imagine how many times the magicians were called to Pharaoh to try to get rid uh, or to duplicate it or whatever? This, there is an interesting uh, 
idea in the Hebrew here. The language in verse 18, so there were gnats on man and beast. Uh, let me go back for a second. The phrase bring out the lice could mean either produce them or get rid of them or take them out. There's a possibility in the Hebrew for both. I would tend to think that Pharaoh's request would be, get them out of here and look for an ancient exterminator in the land of Egypt. Can I get a witness? Pull up the vans, bring out the big guns, get rid of them. Whether it was adding, I, I don't know why they would add gnats or trying to get rid of them, they could not. And so the gnats were on man and beast. Can you imagine coming to Pharaoh to give your report? Pharaoh, we tried with our magical arts. And we, I can't hear you. Speak up. We tried with our magical arts. We couldn't do it. And they're buzzing Pharaoh and they're buzzing the priests. And by the way, the priests were very much into cleanliness in Egypt. Uh, they shaved their body hair, shaved their heads for their service. So the priesthood in Egypt probably was rendered, you know, they couldn't do anything. And the bugs were everywhere. Can you imagine what life was like in Egypt? The desperation of people. How many people must have been annoyed walking down the street, running down the street? Ah! <laughs> It was, had to be complete chaos and mayhem. Magnified many times over what we've seen in our world. And so they were on man and beast. They couldn't do it. They couldn't get rid of the chaos. And neither can we without the Lord. Colossians 1 says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, Jesus, all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him, in Jesus, all things hold together. You want to know who's controlling ma'at, if you will? Jesus. He holds the whole world together. And he holds my life together. Without him, I would be a disaster. My life would be chaos. And so verse 19, the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. That's the Hebrew word Elohim. They don't use the word Yahweh. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he did not listen to them as the Lord had said. This is the finger of God. We can't duplicate it. We can't get rid of them. This is God. Now, are they acknowledging that the God of the Bible is the true God that's open for debate because the Hebrew word Elohim can be translated gods? Did they think that this was some supreme God? Did they believe it was the God of the Bible that's open for some debate? But let's assume for a moment that they say, this is the God of Israel doing this. This is the power of God and the finger of God. I don't think they're, they've become believers, but they're acknowledging God's power. Did that happen in the ministry of Jesus? Yes. People saw his power. They even witnessed him raising Lazarus from the dead. And still, Jesus said, though one rises from the dead, some will not believe. It doesn't matter the evidence that you give them. 
The evidence, the fingerprints of God are all around us. The heavens declare the glory of God. Your body cries out that there's a God. The design of this particular planet and the universe and its order and the distance of the sun and the moon and the oceans and sea life, uh, man, there's so much diversity and yet in the complexity, it all works together. God has not hidden himself from anyone. And just by the physical creation, we're, out, we're without excuse. Now, only twice more in the Old Testament is the finger of God, that language mentioned. You know what it has to do with? The writing of what? The Ten Commandments. Moses says in Exodus 31, 18, that the law, the literal stone tablets, were written with the finger of God. Do you know that's why people don't want the Ten Commandments up on the wall? Because they represent the God of the Bible and his divine law. And they're really good things. Like don't have idols in your life. Honor your mom and dad. Have a day of worship set aside where you can rest and recover and focus on God. Don't murder. Don't steal. Don't commit adultery. Don't lie. Don't covet. Oh, we can't have those up on the wall. Why not? Because then people would read them and get a tummy ache. That's what some people literally think. They get a tummy ache. All those thou shall nots. It sort of bugs me. In the New Testament, the finger of God comes up. And I want you to turn there, and we'll conclude with a couple of New Testament passages. We're going to move to Luke 11, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So Jesus came on the scene. He was doing ministry, and one of the uh, aspects of his ministry was casting out demons. Talk about things that bug. Luke 11, look at verse 15. Some of them said, that is Pharisees, according to Matthew's version, we're in Luke eleven fifteen. said, he, Jesus, cast out demons by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. And others to test him were demanding of him a sign from heaven. But he knew their thoughts, how inconvenient. And he said to them, any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a house divided against itself falls. If Satan also is divided against himself, how shall his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. If I by Beelzebul cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? Consequently, they shall be your judges. Now, Beelzebul is the name of the, for the devil, but it actually means master of the house. And the Jews had a play on words, and they they changed the name to Beelzebub with a B-U-B at the end. It, it occurs as the name of a, of a false god in Ekron. But guess what it came to mean? And it was a, a derisive term. term. It came to mean Lord of the Dung or Lord of the Flies. And they said, oh, 
He's casting out demons by the power of the Lord and the flies. And that was derisive. That is that they, it was a put down. And Jesus walked around the area of Galilee and down into Jerusalem. And you know what he saw? People under the power of Satan. People bugged. People under that, they couldn't get rid of it. They couldn't brush it away. They had no power. And Jesus, with the word, not only would he cast out demons, but he would say, be quiet. Don't say anything. And he was the power of God on display. And he went around doing good. And he says these words, this is verse 20, but if, Luke eleven twenty, 20, if I cast out demons by the finger of God, in Matthew's parallel passage, it says by the spirit of God, Matthew 12, 28, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own homestead, his possessions are undisturbed. But when someone stronger than he attacks him and overpowers him, he takes away from him all his armor on which he had relied and distributes his plunder. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. The greater Moses showed up, and he said, I, referring back to Exodus, cast out demons by the finger of God, by the power of God, and because of that, the kingdom of God is upon you. What was he saying? Don't brush away the witness right before you. I am God. In me is the power of God. And if you will believe, you'll be delivered from the darkness associated with these dark powers. That's what Egypt was being told. That's what Israel was being told. That's what we're being told. One more. John chapter 8, just the next book to your right. Jesus went to the Mount of Olives and early in the morning, John 8, 1, now verse 2, he came again into the temple. And all the people were coming to him and he sat down and began to teach them. And the scribes and the Pharisees, John 8, 3, brought a woman caught in adultery, having uh, set her in the midst. So Jesus was teaching these guys, probably strong-arming this woman. The Bible says she was caught in the very act of adultery, is placed before the master teacher. And they said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Now in the law of Moses, written by the finger of God, the law of Moses commanded us to stone such a woman, such women. What then do you say? You can feel the pause and the tension. And they were saying this, testing him, but I'm gonna to submit to you, brethren, that Jesus is about to test them in order that they might have grounds for accusing him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger, he what? He wrote on the ground. Now this is the only record that I know of other than the reference in Luke 11 to the casting out of demons of Jesus writing. And he writes in the ground, in the dust, all kinds of conjecture about what he wrote in the dust. The Greek word allows for writing letters or even drawing like figures. What did he write? 
Some people think he wrote a verse in Jeremiah 17 that basically says these words, all those who turn away from me will be recorded in the dust and end up essentially in the dust maybe. Some people say, well, maybe he was writing all the people there who were holding rocks to kill her and their sins. But I think this is something that just struck me. I think in the writing of the dust of the earth, one way to look at this is Jesus is saying this. Everything that bugs you, all the sin that so easily entangles you, including this woman caught in the very act of adultery, all God's people said, where's the guy? We don't know. That's... And even the people holding the rocks thinking they're so righteous that she should die. He is the answer. And some people believe that he's, he's drawing a cross in the ground. The Greek allows for that. As if to say, the answer to the fact that you're gonna return to the dust, from the dust you came, so to the dust you shall return, is answered in me becoming one of you. Because in me is the power of God, the power to save the power to deliver from the bugs, the things that bug you, sin, death, Satan, disease, you name it. That's why I'm here. I've come to deliver you. I am the manifest power of God. God in a human body. And so I think you all know the story. The people were ready to stone Jesus. And he wrote in the ground. And when, it says, when they persisted in asking him seven, he straightened up. What about, what do you say? What do you say? What do you say? He straightened up and said to them, okay. He who is without sin among you, let him throw the first stone at her. Go ahead. Which one of you is not guilty? The one who had the right to throw the stone was the one that was writing in the ground. If there was anybody who could divinely judge this, it was him. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground, eight. And when they heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones, and he was left alone, and the woman where she was in the midst. Can you imagine the emotion that she must have gone through? And straightening up, Jesus said to her, woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? And she said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go your way. From now on, sin no more. This is the final word. Leave your life of sin. I'm not gonna condemn you. I've come here to save you, but here's what's implied. Follow me. And you'll leave your life of sin behind you. The very next verse accentuates this. Jesus spoke and he said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but will have, shall have the light of life. Father, thank you for this section of scripture. Thank you for all the moms today. Thank you for the power of God manifested in the person of Christ. Thank you that he is still saving.
still delivering from all that bugs us. And this particular scene, ultimately, I pray, brings us hope that the deliverer, the greater Moses, arrived. And even though this idea of the dust of the earth and us returning to it is sobering, he delivers from sin, Satan, and death itself. And Lord, we know you're still delivering. And you want us to be free. And my prayer for those who may be watching via live stream, those who are here, is that anyone who doesn't know you, anyone who has sensed feeling bugged by these deep gnawing questions that ultimately we cannot escape, we don't need to escape them. We can face them with you, with your power. And you came and displayed that power through your miracles, through your ministry, through your resurrection, and you're alive. And you can remove the things that bug us. So I'm gonna ask you just to take a moment, allow the Spirit of God to speak to your heart, And if you have not met Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you've not experienced his delivering power. You can, but you must repent. You must ask him to save you. It's not enough to witness the power or see the fingerprints. You have to ask the one who saves to save you. And if you're sensing that he's been preparing you for that or maybe even... calling you to return to your first love. This would be a great time to do some business with him. You don't have to have a perfect prayer, but just know that he came to this world to seek and to save that which is lost. And that's anybody without him, anybody who's feeling like they don't know what to do, feeling like their life is chaotic. Won't you cry out to him? Won't you just ask him to save you right now and say, Lord, I want you to become my king, my Lord, my God. I turn away from all the idols in my life, all the false gods that cannot ultimately produce. And I turn to you. I I place my trust in you. I repent. I believe you died on the cross and rose from the dead and I want to follow you. Change me from the inside out. Lord, you are faithful to hear those prayers and I I also know that you're faithful to hear other prayers that are being communicated even from the heart. Thank you that you are so faithful, so good, so loving, so gracious. May your grace pour over your people in Jesus' name. Amen.